Sometimes we have this mindset that great leaders should be these perfect humans, and they're really not. They're far from that. That's a much deeper conversation, but sometimes we don't, we, you know, we don't mesh the two. You know, to be sometimes an effective leader doesn't mean that you're a perfect human. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's J.R. Flatter here with Lucas. How you doing, Lucas? Hey, good morning. Lucas is our millennial voice. I'm the boomer of the group. Uh, I'm not sure where you fall in that in that uh, timeline, Chuck. But just to remind everybody, we're here is the building a coaching culture. Lucas and I are both leadership coaches, and we think that a coaching culture is the key to success in this hyper competitive labor market that we find ourselves in. Everybody's talking about the great resignation, the freelance market, and all of that. And so, you know, how do leaders of complex organizations lead and and succeed in that environment. We're honored today to have Chuck Moeller as our distinguished guest. I'm looking at your resume here and your bio. You got a pretty impressive life and, and what you're doing now. So take some time to brag about yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I started my firm 15 and a half years ago. So it's, uh, it's gone by pretty quickly. That's a pretty amazing 15 and a half years. So I'm a little unique in the sense I am an executive coach as well. I also want to run a consulting firm called MCG Partners, and uh, we provide a number of services, leadership development, which includes executive coaching, management training, leadership development programs, succession planning, a lot of work around leadership alignment as well. And we do provide a lot of organizational services, so everything from employee engagement, consulting, and surveys to managing change to DEI, a lot of work around culture. You mentioned culture. We do a lot of work around culture organizational culture, what we mean by culture, how do you create culture, how do you sustain culture. And we do a lot of work around assessments. We have our own proprietary 360 assessment. And we're also a certified partner with an assessment called the Predictive Index, which is a behavioral assessment, which is a fantastic tool. So yeah, we're a pretty diverse firm. We've got probably 45 or so people right now. And we work with startups all the way to the Fortune 500. So we're not focused in any particular industry. We really work across industries. And from a career standpoint, I've been in the leadership talent management space probably now for over 25 years and have been in consulting for more years than that. I'm a boomer like you, by the way. So, And uh, I've been fortunate where I grew up through doing strategy consulting, change management consulting, and then I got into the leadership talent management space. And I kind of grew through, through into management where I've actually ran a global consulting firm for a number of years. We got acquired twice in one year, and that's when I decided to start my own firm. Oh, that's pretty impressive background. I would love to hear you describe what is a successful organizational culture in the 21st century? That's a really great question. I, I think the challenge organizations today is first defining a culture is based upon how they define their purpose. You know, And we talk about purpose on a very individual level, but organizations need to have a purpose. And it goes beyond just you know why you're in business in terms of products and services. Like what, what's your aspired state? You know, what, what are you always striving to be and what's the impact you're trying to have on the customers that you serve? So your sense of purpose, that also has to be internalized. And so we always talk about brand 
you know, what's, what's the brand that you're trying to pr- provide there in the marketplace? It should also reflect your internal brand. Your internal brand is also a reflection of your culture. So there has to be some clarity around what do you mean by culture? And your culture essentially is a reflection of your values, what's important to you that's going to drive your purpose, going to drive your strategy, your mission of who you're trying to be, your vision of who you're trying to aspire to be. And then those values have to be broken down into specific observable behaviors, right? Because for your culture to thrive, for people to understand what, what do you mean by culture? How do we demonstrate what our culture is and how we value a culture? There has to be clarity around those specific behaviors that are observable that reflect your culture and, and, the, and those values and therefore can be integrated into all your HR systems and processes. What I mean by that is your recognition, your reward, how you advance and get promoted, all those things have to be tied into, yes, not just your performance and your ability to, to achieve goals and objectives, but also your ability to demonstrate those values those behaviors reflect overall what you mean by culture. And when you have those systems and processes sort of integrated into that, including how you hire, and also, by the way, how you provide feedback, right? So the big focus around feedback and performance management is the ability to provide feedback and development to people and hold people accountable because there, there is an accountability piece. Now, accountability doesn't mean you're beating people up, but you know the classic example is People make this, you know, when I say people, organizations create this great effort in communication around their culture and how they define it. And you see these wonderful bulletin boards and cafeterias and conference rooms, and they start collecting dust because that's where it stops. So the key, the key is how do you sustain that and integrate your culture and those values and behaviors into how you operate and you live every day? And you know that all it takes is one leader, one top performer who quote unquote gets away with not demonstrating those behaviors and values, and that's when your culture starts to erode. Now, why is this important? Because a healthy culture is reflective of a highly engaged workforce. Now, why is that important? Because a highly engaged workforce and history through data and research of the last 20 plus years has shown the higher engaged workforces the stronger financial and overall business performance your organization is going to have. There's an absolute correlation to engagement levels, to financial and business performance. So that that's the correlation. Yeah, a lot of good stuff there. I'm, I was chuckling because I'm teaching a class, facilitating a class tomorrow on power and a lot of what you're talking about and you know, communicate and then demonstrate. And part of the demonstration is, are you following what you're saying? Yeah, well, it's the classic walk the talk, right? And and you know, to to really the foundation of all this is leadership, right? Leadership has to, you know, when you talk about culture, you're also talking about you know a leadership culture. What do you mean by leadership? And how is leadership going to demonstrate that to their employees? So yeah, it's a big part of it. I really like that tidbit. Um, having your values then lead to observable behaviors. Um, I notice in um, software development, when you talk about being agile, you know, we have the observable behaviors like, you know, we have our sprint planning and retrospectives and things, but they don't necessarily spring from the values. It's kind of something that we hope to pick up, you know, or demonstrate by doing the procedures. So how do you kind of make sure that those procedures and processes really come from your values, like you said? Yeah. So you, you, again, you have to really be systematic, Lucas. You have to really be able to sort of articulate and have definition of what those values are. 
And people need to have clarity and understand how to interpret that and how to internalize that. So I think that's step number one. There's got to be real great clarity on those values. And those specific behaviors also need to be very, very clear. There can't be a lot of misinterpretation of what you mean. So for example, you mentioned the word agile. I'm very familiar with agile scrum methodology. I actually wrote a book called The Rise of the Agile Leader, Can You Make the Shift? And we, I use the word agile as a verb in my book because the whole concept of being agile is really, really one of those key you know, competencies you know, for leaders. We can talk about that as well. But I think going back to your question, you know, the clarity definition has to be really, really clear and easily understood and interpreted so that way people are aligned and consistent by how what they mean by that. And, and that all has to be documented. And that has to be defined, clearly written out, and then captured so that people, you know, can not only have discussions and celebrate and acknowledge and say, this is part of who we are. This is what we mean by a healthy culture. And by the way, this is reflective of our brand internally and our brand externally. So this alignment of brand, internal, external, and culture and have these sort of clarity around those definitions and documented and written. So that way it, it's not only sort of uh, given to everybody, but it's also discussed. It's also ensured that every team, every individual really has a sense of understanding. And then you actually incorporate those definitions, those clarity of values and behaviors into performance management recognition reward systems, as I mentioned earlier. I heard you talked a little bit about mission and vision, I think it'd be helpful to hear how do you differentiate the two? What are the differences? If I am a startup, how do I create and sustain a mission and a vision? In a lot of ways, I think sometimes these areas get over-engineered, honestly. I think a lot of organizations spend a lot of time on constantly tweaking what they mean by their vision and their mission. Your, your mission goes back to, I think, purpose. In a lot of ways, your, your mission is reflective of your purpose, which is why do you exist? You know, what ultimately you're trying to provide to the marketplace, whether it's individuals or businesses or products or services, right? So that's your mission. Your vision is, is how you're, you're actually going to achieve that. Our vision is this is how we, we envision ourselves reaching sort of our objectives, our mission, our approach, our purpose, right? So, and that's why I use this, this word purpose and mission as your aspired state, because you should always be aspiring to try to get to what your, what your purpose and your mission is, right? So it's sort of like a never ending pursuit because the marketplace innovation is always going to evolve your services and your products. And your vision again is, is how you're actually going to accomplish all that. So to keep it simple, I'm definitely in the, the school of keeping it simple. Um, that's how I would define those. So just to go back to that, you know, the marketplace evolving and, you know, change being the only constant and you have your book, The Rise of the Agile Leader. And so do you believe that, you know, being able to react to changes and, and be agile is important and, and why? Why is that such an important leadership trait? Yeah, it's, it's, for all, it's for many, many reasons. There's so much data out there, Lucas, uh, that supports, you know, even before COVID, right? We, we, the world has been changing pretty rapidly, right? We, you know, we often talk about the Amazon impact, right? You know, consumers want things tomorrow. I mean, think of a world, and, and you, you, maybe, maybe you not, can't relate to this as much as maybe JR and I can relate to this, but Trust me, the world has changed dramatically, you know, not just the last 30, 40 years, but even the last 10 years. And so 
cook consumers' expectations of not only when they want a product and service, again, the Amazon impact, if you want to call it that, but also the sense of now, the sense of change, the sense of you know, market competition, global competition. A great example would be you know, the Fortune 500. In the last 25 years, I'm sorry, the last 20 years, half of the Fortune 500 don't exist. And they're actually expecting that in the next 10 years, half of the Fortune 500 will disappear. And we're talking about the Fortune 500. We're not talking about startups here. I mean, that, to me, that's a startling number. Now, some of that's mergers and acquisitions, right? Because if you merge a company, they're, they're going to be off the Fortune 500. But the majority of that are companies that no longer exist. So you think about that kind of tur- churn and that kind of change in terms of really big established companies literally no longer being part of the Fortune 500. And actually, the trickle-down effect of that in terms of startups and family-owned businesses and VC-funded or private equity-funded companies. I mean, the amount of intense change of business succeeding and not succeeding is enormous. And the impact that has on on employees and customers and, 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 and leaders. I mean, the complexity of the world today, now you go post-COVID and you got the virtual hybrid workforce. You've got more generations of the workforce we've ever seen. You've got the, the focus and need of diversity, equity, inclusion. You've got the, the gig economy, right? You know, there's probably about 40% of the workforce right now is gig economy. Think about that. That's almost half the workforce. In the next 10 years, they're saying that's going to be over 50%. So there's all kinds of implications in terms of what your workforce looks like. You mentioned the great resignation earlier. You know, there's so many elements right now that make the business environment so complex. The cycles of innovation have gotten shorter and shorter. People's interest in innovation, you know, people getting bored after a product in, in a year. They're expecting the, ne- the next latest, you know, generation, not just in software and everything. So so when you think about all those things, the implications are, you know, leaders need to be able to create stability in a world of chaos, right? Because then you add mergers and acquisitions and you add transition and, and changing your strategy, right? There's no longer strategic plans for the most part, right? People are recognizing they have to be more nimble because by the time you create a strategic plan for five years, it's outdated in six months, right? So all these things have major implications in how you create an organization that's nimble, that can adapt to change, that's focused on innovation, and that can wear you know, multiple decision-making uh, abilities while you're creating not just a healthy culture and going back to some of those definitions. There's a lot more to culture, right? Culture around innovation, culture around stability and safety in terms of people feeling valued and appreciated. And when you think of all these generations in the workforce, they all have a very, very different perspective and different needs, including, by the way, this whole debate right now in the workforce of hybrid and virtual versus coming back to the office. So the complexity we have today, we've never seen in the history of you know, our work environment. So I see in your bio, and you mentioned in the very beginning, you have a strong background in psychometrics, 360 assessments, personality profiles. I'm kind of a yin and yang on the value of these tools, we use them a lot ourselves. So that's the yin part. The yang part is they often get overused or overemphasized. So if you could spend a couple of minutes talking about your understanding of the value of these tools and perhaps even your own tool, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So one, let's clarify what they are, right? A 360 assessment is a snapshot in time. It's getting feedback from your boss, your peers, your direct reports, if you have any, 
and other key stakeholders, other key people you have to work with to understand how you're perceived. And they're mainly written 360 assessments in, in executive coaching or often doing verbal 360 assessments. And then, by the way, then you also assess yourself. And the value of a 360 is understanding how you're perceived by others, including your strengths, but also maybe the top two or three development opportunities where people consistently say, here are the one or two things that you can really get better at. And then how you compare yourself, right? So often we sometimes see ourselves much stronger than our key stakeholder groups may see us. So the value of a 360, it is not a performance management tool. There are organizations out there and people who are misusing a 360. It's people's opinions and people's opinions matter. That's the first thing we have to recognize when it comes to whether you're a leader or an individual contributor and getting a 360, but it's a development tool. It's about improving your self-awareness to understand how you're perceived by others and especially gathering better alignment on how you see yourself versus how others see you. But again, it's people's opinions, it's a subjective tool, but it's a great development tool, assuming, and this is a big assumption, that people are being transparent and honest. It's very often, depending on your culture and how healthy it is, going back to culture, some people are very hesitant to often be open and honest and direct in the 360. So you have to make sure if you're going to use a 360 test, especially a written one, there has to be an environment where people feel very comfortable that they can be honest and accurate with their feedback. Okay. Now, a, a behavioral assessment, which is really truly a more of the psychometric assessment or tool, the challenge is there are a number of behavioral assessments out there that are very popular. I'm not going to name them. There are some of what is actually the most popular in the world. And the irony is it's actually the mo- one of the least accurate behavioral assessments in the world. And, and that's the challenge. And, you know, you know, whether it's an HR professional or a CEO or someone in management, it doesn't really make a difference. Everyone just gravitates to what's known and popular, and people don't have the time or the interest to actually determine, am I actually using an assessment that's accurate, that's going to actually get me the results I want, without necessarily saying, hey, it's a fun experience or people really enjoy it. But the problem is, when you take it more than once, the, the answers are going to be, you know, the results will be completely different. So the reason I use a tool called the Predictive Index or PI, again, there are other really, really strong, accurate behavioral assessments out there. But if you're going to use a behavioral assessment, you want to make sure, number one, that it's a valid instrument. So it has to pass this sort of standard of validity that, frankly, means it's accurate. And I don't know about you, but I want to use a tool that's been proven through research and validation that's accurate, okay? That's number one. Number two, it it should really translate, especially if you're in a leadership role, how does this really translate into my leadership effectiveness? So Again, not to assume a psychometric tool like predictive index or PI, it's a behavioral assessment that's actually assessing who you are behaviorally. It's not, it's not opinion. It's not subjective. It's scientific tool that's accurately defining, you know, who you are, what motivates and drives you. So whether you took PI in your twenties, thirties, forties, fifties and beyond, it should be consistent. Why? Because we are who we are. Yes. The, our environment impacts us, our ability to learn and develop and, and modify ourselves. But situationally, we can, be, we can modify ourselves, but we are still who we are. So the value of that is to understand naturally, you know, what are those characteristics and how we demonstrate, how we manage change, how we deal with conflict, our natural communication style, our natural decision-making style, how we simply approach work and how we approach working with people. And the value of the combination of both 
is you're getting an understanding of how you're perceived by others and, you're, and then how you perceive yourself. Or, and then the combination of PI or a behavioral assessment in terms of who you are. So that, that's the distinction. And we talk about, you know, having that self-awareness and coaching and, you know, knowing how you're being perceived by others. And so looking at that from like a cultural perspective, um, how do you get other individuals as a leader, other people on your team to kind of um, reach that level of self-awareness and, you know, know their strengths and weaknesses and be observing their own behaviors and things like that? It's a great question, Lucas. And, and, you know, I think so I would encourage using tools like a 360 assessment and a behavioral assessment because self-awareness, and again, I talk about it often, including my book, that self-awareness is really the foundation to be successful, right? I mean, and as coaches, you understand that to work with anyone, it is about helping them understand how they show up, especially under pressure and stress, what their derailers are, what's the impact they have on others. And our personalities have a huge impact on that, especially under pressure and stress, which we're, we almost always default to our natural self, no matter how much we've modified ourselves situationally to be effective. So having these tools that allows us to understand who we are and how we're perceived by others allows us then to say, okay, how do I address this? And it's not about being a chameleon. It's not about trying to manipulate. It's really about still being your authentic self, but also recognize the importance about being situationally effective. So organizations that use tools like this, but do it in a healthy way. Because again, it's not about limiting people or saying you're, I'm stereotyping people. It's about recognizing, yes, based upon certain profile, some people are better suited for certain career tracks than others. But especially if you're trying to develop people, promote people, be effective, oh, go up, by the way, reflect your values and, and effective behaviors for your culture, you know, by improving that self-awareness, you're actually improving the effectiveness of how people work together day to day. And, you know, one of the bigger challenges in the workforce today, and COVID just accelerated this, is conflict, right? Everyone's become conflict adverse. Well, some of it is behavioral. Some of us think conflict is just healthy debate, right? If you're if you're highly assertive, you know, you're not only strong with opinions, you're also very strong in how you communicate and demonstrate those opinions. Well, there are some people who naturally are the exact opposite of that. They don't enjoy conflict. They actually avoid conflict. They rather do do anything to get into a quote unquote debate with somebody. So going back to understanding yourself and how you show up in meetings and discussions. You know, the biggest mistake is, and it's not just if you're quiet or more reserved, it's also because you may be conflict avoidant. You have a meeting, everyone thinks, okay, we're aligned, we're all agree, because people don't say anything, and they walk out, and the people who are conflict avoidant start telling them around, you know, telling everybody around how much they disagree with that decision, right? And we call that kind of passive aggressive behavior, right? And very often it's because their their lack of comfort to get into what they perceive as a conflict situation. So just using that as an example, we have to learn how to uh, have not only more courageous dialogue, but how to be more adaptable and also how to work with different personalities so that, that, that there can be healthy conflict and frankly, better discussions, better decisions, and better inclusion with different members of your team. Thanks. I like that example because it's vague enough where I'm saying, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> you just used one of my favorite words, by the way, courageous. I had this question in my list of 
in this scarce environment. So every uh, doctoral dissertation I've ever read, every report you read starts with the same sentence in these challenging times. And so here we are in these challenging times, everything's scarce. Every dollar I spend, I'm, I'm weighing, why do I need it? And so the question is, why do I need an executive coach? But you've just indirectly demonstrated the value of, a, of a, an executive coach. I talk about culture all the time. I talk about leadership all the time. And you just connected two dots for me that I'd never connected before. Culture and a 360. They obviously impact each other. But until you said that out loud two minutes ago, I had never connected those two dots. And therein lies the beauty of an executive coach and why it would be worthwhile to invest. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you said you work with startups, you work with Fortune 500s. Why would I invest in executive coaching? It's a different value proposition if you're what I call business to business. And I'm a company that's being hired by businesses to work with executives and leaders, in addition to all those services I mentioned earlier. Then there's individuals, you know, so business to see, business to consumers, which are individuals that are thinking about hiring a coach. So it's a different value proposition, right? And I'm not as familiar with the, the B2C because as, as I really, we market toward, toward companies and we work and partner with companies. But I think for any individual, and, and the reason I clarify that, differentiate that, because you know, a lot of these executives, you know, often they raise their hand to their companies and say, yes, I really would like an executive coach. Most of it's like a CEO who's just been promoted or is getting ready to be promoted or another senior executive that's in that track and says, yes, I want to help someone to help me get to that next level. But very often it's the organization that says, hey, I think you need an executive coach and for very good reasons, right? So the good news, at least in corporate America and throughout the world, really, coaching is used to help very, very high performing, highly talented, uh, high potential leaders of any level you know, invest in their own specific leadership development by, through a coach. And that's where that usually happened. You know, going back, you know, 15 plus years ago, on occasion, it would be used for a person that was really in trouble. And more often than not, the majority of the time, it was almost too late to, to have a coach because their brand and their reputation and their credibility was beyond repair, right? So that kind of punitive, you know, kind of a response while it's having a coach. It doesn't really happen anymore. I think for individuals, it's a little bit of a different value proposition. Why? Because it's their money, not the organization that's financing or funding it and sponsoring it. And I think the most important aspect is the investment in yourself. How, do, how am I going to continue to be effective and can I do it on my own? And in a lot of ways, I was one of those people, but I say this as a, and you know, whether it's my four kids or my clients or even my employees, and my advice is always very simple. You know, don't make the mistake that many of us make, which is try to do it all alone. And yes, mentorship is important. Advocacy is important in your organization. But you have to have your own sort of board of directors, right? And you need people who are going to help you get to the next level, especially if that's what your ambition is and your, and your own personal aspiration. And coaching is really a one-on-one -on -one leadership development experience. And hopefully that person will have the expertise not only improve your self-awareness, but also provide you direction and tools and experiences and insights to really help accelerate your ability to be effective. And yes, hopefully using best practices and tools like a behavioral assessment and a 360 assessment. And in coaching, I really like the interviews. 
versus necessarily a written 360. So it's the same concept, but you're actually interviewing key stakeholders and getting a little richer and deeper qualitative insights to that person and then sharing that and again in a safe confidential manner where people are not mentioned by name which is in a written 360 as well those are all usually confidential as you know so i think i think to me that's the greatest value is not only improving self-awareness but really helping accelerate that guidance and insight and helping them steer down the right path in terms of what they're trying to accomplish in their life and that's any kind of coaching not just executive coaching Talking about, you know, that self-awareness and how everyone has different strengths and things. Um, I often look at things like outside of the office, like, oh, I'm I'm more likely to do this activity or this hobby. And, and then I bring it back to work in certain ways. So do you have any hobbies, whether it's, you know, reading or or like gardening, sports, what have you, that you think contribute to your perspective as a leader in any way? Yeah, that's a fair, really fair question, Lucas. I think, you know, I think the if there's anything I would highly advise to anyone is we used to talk about work life balance, right? And you know, I'll laugh now because what does what does really balance mean, right? It's it's not an equitable equation. I think the key question is: Are you spending a healthy amount of time in sort of the four quadrants of your life? At least how I define those four quadrants is obviously your work, which is where we spend the majority of our time, our family and friends our community, and then for ourselves, right? So for example, you know, I happen to love fitness. I, 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 I love uh, dogs. I, I, I love travel. I, I love to play golf. I, I find golf to be a very serene experience and allows me to reflect and relax. And I think the key is necessarily not what your hobbies are, but what, what, is, what, do, you, what do you need as a person? What brings you sort of a sense of joy and peace? What's going to recharge your batteries? But most importantly, don't over-rotate. You know, a lot of people put so much of their heart and soul into their work, and then they're crushed and disappointed when they don't get that promotion, or even worst case scenario, they lose their job, and it's debilitating for them on a certain level. And all that means is you know, they haven't really found and invested in the rest of their quadrants in their life. And if anything, the biggest challenge most people have is they're not investing enough of themselves. You know, they put everything into their job, sacrifice everything for their family and their friends. But the reality is if you're not taking care of yourself, it's really hard to take care of the world around you. So find out what being healthy is for you. And then cl- clearly after COVID and, and all the challenges of working virtually, it's not just about your physical health anymore, right? It's about your mental health, your spiritual health, your emotional health. So creating time for yourself. And one of the things I talk about all the time for all of us, not just leaders, is do you have enough downtime to think, to reflect? Uh, we're always on the run. We're always running from one thing to another, no matter who you are, what your life may be, what, you know, what are the details? And most people don't have enough time to think, to reflect, to plan. And that's really, really critical for all the reasons we just spoke about. Yeah, I like that. Like having a bunch of plates spinning because maybe you have a win in this domain and a loss here and, you know, mm. you can kind of maintain your level head. <laughs> yeah, Lucas, you almost stole my favorite question. I was waiting to ask Chuck uh, the whole interview. So I saw in your bio that you're involved in this 192 mile bicycle event. And now you've just talked about work, family, self, uh, community, and you use the word investment with regard to those. And I love that thought of investing purposefully in each of those. So talk to us about 
what this event means to you and, and how you worked it into your four quadrants and, and why. What's important about it to you? So it's, it's a bike-a-thon, if you want to call it. It's a, it's a ride to raise money uh, for cancer research, right? It was founded by this one individual named Billy Starr back in the, I think it was probably like the late 80s. If I remember correctly, his mother was dying of cancer, actually was, had or maybe already passed away. And him and a bunch of friends did this ride in two days. And that sort of became, literally evolved into organizing more people. And next thing you know, let's raise some money. And it's actually today now the largest sports fundraiser in the United States. So in one weekend, as of right now, I think they're raising between 60 and $70 million for one weekend of biking. Okay. So it's a pretty phenomenal event. And for anyone who's been impacted by cancer, who themselves were a cancer survivor. So for me, it was a combination of two things. You know, I, I've had family impacted by cancer. And um, it was a chance to do something that was challenging. I like to be challenged. And at the time, you know, when I first started it, my oldest daughter was just uh, very, very young. And um, I, you know, actually, three of my, my kids were very, very young. And I needed something to get myself in shape again. So it was an excuse to say, okay, here's a really big challenge, right? 192 miles in two days. And oh, by the way, you know, cancer research and the cure for cancer is something I'm pretty passionate about. It was a combination of both, right? It was a challenge. It was, it was a physical challenge, and then also something I was very passionate about in terms of supporting, you know, the cure for cancer. So that started that journey. It's been God. It's been I think over thirty years now. I haven't done it every year for a variety of reasons, whether it's family reasons or health reasons. In terms of my back, unfortunately, what happens you get older, you start getting back issues, especially if you're a golfer. I love the sense of community because we're all there for a purpose, which is to not only raise money. And also the emotional impact everyone's experienced, either themselves as cancer survivors or, or, or people in their families or in their social circle that have been impacted. And it's amazing to go through that whole experience and see sort of that community get together and sort of celebrate, you know, the ability to hopefully find a cure one day. So that's the history. So this is another kind of um, personal question. If you, if you could coach anyone throughout history, you know, living or dead or, you know, fictional or real historical figure, who would it be? Boy, that's a really loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> he always does this. That's why he gets to That's a great question. You know, I won't go too far back in history and uh, I'll use something. It's a little bit of a safe response, but not completely. But when you think about some of our national politicians, you know, here we are, these are people supposedly, you know, leading our states or our counties or our country, for that matter. And I am actually including our, our current and former presidents. I think what I'm most disappointed by is we have this standard in, in organizations and businesses about what we mean by leadership, yet we don't have our politicians, especially in the United States, demonstrate what leadership is. So I would love to create a leadership development program and coaching program for our politicians in this country, because they do not demonstrate why effective and healthy leadership is. So that's why, how I would answer that question. Oh man, nice dodge, Chuck. You like that? Lucas, yesterday. So Lucas and I have this running gun battle with Winston Churchill. And so I was in a conference all day yesterday and all those very senior leaders in our Department of Defense. And I like to say that Winston Churchill was quoted twice yesterday, Lucas. So I'm just I'm tossing that in there for you. It's not just you <laughs> pulling out the quotes. 
just to kind of quickly react to that, I think one of the biggest misnomers is we think that leaders are these perfect humans. You know, you look at Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill, and even someone like um, Steve Jobs. I mean, in a lot of ways, these are not necessarily the best humans, okay? They had a lot of imperfections, a lot of issues. Steve Jobs, actually, in a lot of ways, was a terrible leader. You know, he's really known, of course, his innovation and his drive. But sometimes we have this, this, we have this mindset that, we, we, that great leaders should be these perfect humans, and they're really not. You know, they're, they're far from that. That's a much deeper conversation, but sometimes we don't, we, you know, we don't mesh the two, you know, to be sometimes an effective leader doesn't mean that you're a perfect human. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I have this idea that, and I think it's borne out by uh, demonstration. If you are excellent at something, you probably have an eccentricity in your life that drives people nuts. But thanks for being here. Well, appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.